you just follow along as I read from Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each, of, each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined them and believed, and among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you freed. For not by their own word, sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm, and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are our King, O God, ordain salvation for your people. Through you we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not... In our weapons do we trust, nor can our sword save us. But you have saved us from our foes and have shamed those who hate us. In you we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. 
in these moments together, remind our hearts, our minds of your greatness. Show us clearly our own frailty and need. Speak into our souls through your faithful and blessed word. Animate us with your indwelling spirit to live, to move, to speak all things for your glory and for your honor. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Last week and this week, we're kind of taking the opportunity to um, re-emphasize or think about setting the tone for this year, this new year. And uh, we always lean into our overall mission as a church. And last week, we talked about a white-hot passion for Christ, living, really living day by day for Christ during this coming year. And this week, I want to expand somewhat on this idea. Being a serious disciple means reading, studying, meditating upon the Scripture, to live according to God's Word, and to be people of unceasing prayer. God expects us, requires of us, to be gospel people in this world. That means to be living, declaring the gospel openly, boldly, without apology, even effectively and expectantly. God has said His Word will not return void. If we proclaim it, He is sure to make it effective. The challenge, the problem that most of us deal with, think about in this world, is that we live in a largely post-Christian world. You hear that a lot, right? In Christian circles anyway. We're living in post-Christian times. Well, I want to submit to you today that we've always been pre- or post-Christian world, right? Since the fall in the garden, the world has been resistant to God, in rebellion toward God, and not open to hear the gospel, the good news. So let's just move that excuse out of the way this morning. That's kind of what I want us to do and to think more about what it means to be Christ people, even in a post-Christian world. So what is a post-Christian society? What is a post-Christian world? What are they talking about when they make such a claim? Well, one definition I ran across said that a post-Christian society is one in which Christianity is no longer the dominant civil religion, but that has gradually assumed values, culture, and worldviews that are not necessarily Christian. Now, we can appreciate that given our history as a nation, how we were founded, formed, shaped, and what has guided us, uh, whether you can quibble a lot with some of the specifics, but the bottom line is there's been an overarching theme behind the formation and founding of this country for a long time, and that has gone away, and it's caused a great deal of consternation in Christian circles in the church. And somehow we uh, find ourselves drifting into this mindset that we need to get the landscape of our social fabric straightened out in order for the gospel to go forth, when in fact it's quite the opposite. We as the church need to get back to being what God has called us to be and let Him worry about fixing what's going on in society. That's the way it's always been. That's what we see among the disciples in the early stages of Christianity. And uh, that's what I want us to focus on as a church in this coming year. The Barner Group did a uh, study about four or five, maybe six years ago now, 
about post-Christian cities in the United States. The good news and the bad news is, is that eight of the 10 most post-Christian cities in America are in the New England um, northeastern area of our country. And so you go, yeah, way to go, Bible Belt, right? Atlanta ranked 52nd on that list with a 35% post-Christian metric. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that they measured people, post-Christian individuals meet nine or more of 16 characteristics. Highly post-Christian individuals meet 13 or more of those 16 characteristics. Now, I'm going to give you quickly those 16 characteristics, and you can do your own research on that and formulate your own thinking about it. Here are the 16 characteristics they used. Number one, they do not believe in God. Number two, identify as atheist or agnostic. Number three, disagree that faith is important in their lives. Number four, have not prayed to God in the last week. Number uh, five, have never been a, have never made a commitment to Jesus. Number six, disagree that the Bible is accurate. Number seven, have not donated money to a church in the last year. Number eight, have not attended a ch Christian church in the last six months. Number nine, agree that Jesus committed sins. Number 10, do not feel a responsibility to share their faith. Number 11, have not read the Bible in the last week. Number 12, have not volunteered at church in the last week. Number 13, have not attended Sunday school in the last week. Number 14, have not attended religious small groups in the last week. Number 15, Bible engagement, uh, their Bible engagement scale is low. That means that they have not read the Bible in the past week and disagree strongly or somewhat that the Bible is accurate. <clears throat> and number 16, they're not born again. So uh, nothing there probably surprises you. But if folks measured nine of 16 of those, they're considered to be post-Christian. If it's 13 of 16, then they're considered to be highly post-Christian. Now, Christians struggle to share their faith in encouraging environments, let alone in a discouraging environment, right? You, if you were uh, standing up in front of this group, you would have some trepidation about sharing your faith uh, because of the nervousness that goes with that or that someone might criticize you. So if we've got a world that we know predominantly has become anti-Christian or hostile to Christianity or majorly indifferent to it, then it becomes even more difficult for us to be sharing. It's an especially daunting task that we're asking you to be engaged in, that Christ has given us to be engaged in. Yet our mission has not changed in spite of the culture's prejudices. God hasn't given us plan number two for when the world becomes post-Christian, right? The plan is the same it has always, as it has always been from the get-go. In fact, our text makes clear that the gospel has always, always faced resistance and always will until Jesus returns. So what I want us to do now is to think about, well, let's exposit or expound on this passage that's before us. Examine Paul's visit to Athens and see what we discover in Paul that might help us in the task that's before us. I want to think about some things that have been going on prior to this. In Acts 16 and following, uh, we find that Paul and his team were forbidden by God to go into Asia and speak the word. In fact, God called them in a rather interesting way to Macedonia or to what would be the foundation of gospel going into Europe rather than going east. 
Once they were in Philippi, you'll remember that Lydia and uh, a group of ladies were meeting outside the city there at a river, and Paul went out, he and his team, and shared the gospel. And the scripture says she believed and received the gospel and her household, and they were baptized and began to follow Christ. Uh, Because of this, they're making their way, they're drawing a crowd, and they came upon a slave girl. She was used by her masters to make money. She was uh, proclaiming uh, divinities and, and all kinds of predictions and things of this nature. It had kind of a mysticism about her. And uh, Paul commanded the spirit, the evil spirit, to come out of her, and it did. And when he did, that meant that she was no longer any good to her employers. So they became enraged at Paul, and they beat he and his team, and they ended up in jail in Philippi. And you'll remember they were singing and praising God at midnight, and there was a great earthquake that opened all the cells and made, made it easy for all the prisoners to escape. But Paul and Silas evidently kept everybody in line, and no one left. And the warden, when he saw what had happened, the natural response, he was accountable for all those people. And had he uh, allowed them to escape, then he would have certainly been facing capital punishment. So he took out his sword to kill himself. And Paul called out and said, don't kill yourself. We're all still here. Everything's fine. And he shared the gospel and the warden uh, and his household believed on Christ and uh, were following him in believer's baptism. And then they went to Thessalonica, and they shared, and they reasoned, or they proclaimed the truths of the gospel. Some believed, some were agitated, and began to resist and work against them. They went to Berea, they shared the gospel clearly, boldly. Some received eagerly, some believed, and agitators were in the crowd and began to work against them. And so there was this this, uh, constant turmoil going on around the gospel. Now, some people in our modern era would look at that and say, well, God God just wasn't in that, right? They were meeting so much opposition when in fact the opposite is true. The fact that 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 God was in it is why the opposition was intensifying and was always following them around. There were no smooth, calm days, I don't believe, in Paul's life. So the pattern is clear. Bold proclamation, mixed responses, hostility, opposition, even a threat to life and welfare. So they extracted Paul out of Berea, and he was escorted by some allies to Athens. And Timothy and Silas stayed behind and the rest of the team. No one's with him. Paul sent word back and said, tell these guys to come quickly. Maybe he's a little bit concerned. He's by himself. And the way things have been going, you know, he's thinking, I'm not long for this world unless I've got a little bit of help. Somebody watching my back. So they left. And Paul is all alone in this city of Athens. And the implication here is that He moved out in among the people and began to take in the city, looking to see what was going on. First visit there in all likelihood. And um, the scripture says that he was provoked. He was provoked. The spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now this word provoked, paraxuno, which means to be angered or to be irritated. It's a word where we get our word, parixim, 
I think is the right way, which means kind of a sudden attack came upon him. A sudden attack. He was, he was grabbed in, inwardly by what he saw going on. And so this is, a, this is a real stark thing. I think we have seen so much weird things happening in our world, so many things that are foreign to our way of thinking. As many of us in this room are Christians, we've been in church for a time, and maybe we've become kind of, uh, our minds have been impacted in that way. And so we see some of the drastic things that seem to be taking place in our society and we don't respond real well to it, but we've kind of numbed ourselves in many ways and we just accept it and move on. We, we don't allow it to intrude upon our world. We're not going to allow it to cause us to engage in fretfulness or anxiety over these things because we say, well, I can't do anything about it and we move on, right? That wasn't the case with Paul. Paul was, he was gripped by what he saw. Now, not because of anything pertaining to himself, but the implication here is that Paul was angry at, at the uh, dissing, shall we say it this way, of God. That these people were, uh, were, were denying God's rightful glory and they were worshiping all these pretend gods. And so he was offended by that. He was outraged by it. He was jealous for God's glory. So the things I want you to see here, first of all, he was provoked. He allowed his heart, his soul to be provoked by what he saw going on in the world as people were anti-God, living against God, not worshiping the true God, but worshiping all the things that the creator God has made rather than the creator himself. Secondly, he was proactive. He was unwilling to remain silent, unwilling to remain silent. Is that said about us as Christians in the world we live in today? I think not. I think most of us are more inclined to just keep a low profile, keep our head down, keep our thoughts to ourselves and not go out and stir anything up. Now, maybe you are one of these people that get out there and use the anonymity of social media and you may get into some of those discussions that are going on and you think you're out there being a warrior for Christ, but I've, none of those interactions I've seen are really doing much good for the kingdom of God. In fact, they may be hurting us more than helping. But he was proactive. He went out among them. He went in the marketplace. He's by himself. I'll remind you of that. He is all alone in a foreign place, in an unusual place, and a place that is overrun and saturated with false religion. He had every reason to expect they were going to be hostile to anything he might say about the gospel. But he was unwilling to remain silent and unengaged. The third thing I want you to see is he was very strategic. So he reasoned. He went to those that he knew had some foundation in the faith. He went to a synagogue. There was a synagogue there in Athens. And so he went there as he was his custom and began to talk and to reason to them about the Christ. He began to talk to them about scriptural, biblical things, about true gospel things. In the synagogue with the Jews and devout people, in the marketplace with whomever happened to be there. Now, to get a picture, a sense of what the marketplace there in Athens would have been like, I mean, this was where, this was the 
the total activity of the city each and every day. This is where all the goods and services were going on. This is where all the political issues were being debated. This is where the news was being uh, bantered about. This is where all, all the activity of the city was taking place in this marketplace, the Agora. And this is where Paul went. He went to the hub of the activity and he was there among all these things. Entertainment, anything that's going on pertaining to this city was taking place in this area. And Paul dove right in head first. He went to the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers, to the debaters, the intellectuals. So no one was off limits to Paul. Paul was casting a wide net. He was sowing a lot of seed on the ground, hoping that the gospel would take some hold in people's lives. I want you to see, fourthly, that he was bold. That goes without saying, right? The philosophers note that Paul is promoting worship of an unauthorized God. Now, the Romans were pretty lenient when it came to these things. They welcomed and encouraged all kinds of worship to all kinds of gods. But they had to go through the clearinghouse. They had to be approved and sanctioned. This is a bona fide God that you can, you can lean into. Cicero wrote in um, one of the documents that they were to let no one have private gods neither new gods nor strange gods unless publicly acknowledged or authorized are to be worshipped even privately. So the rule was you can't have any god that's not been authorized by the state that you're worshipping even privately in your home. And yet Paul is out in the marketplace willing to break the law, we might say, in order to talk about the gospel and to proclaim Christ to the people there. They called him a babbler. <laughs> You've been called a babbler? I've been called lots of things. I don't think I've been called a babbler yet, but at least not to my face. But a babbler was a bird that picks up random seeds from the ground. Like, kind of like a chicken, you know, these free-range chickens. They're going around, they're just picking and pecking and just grabbing things here and there. But more practically speaking, for uh, the people of that day, this was somebody that was out in the marketplace, and we might even call them kind of a, they thrived on gossip. They walked around and they would gain something that caught their attention from somebody here and somebody there, and all, these, all this data, all this information, all these beliefs were out there, and they were just taking it all in, and they were kind of just mashing it all together, and then they would just spew it out, and it, it was not coherent at all. So they were looked down upon. These were just idle talkers, had nothing really of substance to say, and they misunderstood and misconstrued most things that they had. So they're listening to him, and this is what they see or hear. This guy's talking about things we don't know about. This guy's talking about things that are not familiar to us. He's making this stuff up. It's kind of the attitude that they brought. He was direct. He makes a clear argument for the existence of the Creator God. And he went to the doorway that they themselves provided. He went and said, I notice that you're a very religious people. You, you're a wonderfully religious people. And something weird, you've even got a, 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 an idol here to an unknown God. 
So what they were saying is that you've got all these gods you've identified that are worthy of worship, and you've even set up this God that you realize that there are even gods we don't know about that are worthy of worship. And Paul sees that as an open door for him to go through with the gospel. Well, let me tell you about a God that you're not familiar with, that I don't see any reference to. And this is the God who has created all of you. This is the God that has made all things. And so he uses their own structure to enter in and to start making the case for the gospel. Now, they were willing to listen to him. They thought that he was uh, teaching about two particular gods, that he was talking about this Jesus who was a healing God, and then he gets into this, this other God of resurrection. Now, they were fine with Jesus, the healing God. You'll find that most every place. We see that in our culture today, right? People want to talk about the good Jesus, you know, the Jesus that makes your life better, the the Jesus that's the good man and the good, uh, he's bringing healing and therapy and all these good things to your life and improving your life. But when he started talking about the resurrection, they got really upset with this because they didn't believe. They thought this this was ludicrous. And when you get into the details of the gospel, the atoning work of Christ, the the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that's where everybody gets really uncomfortable. It's no longer about self-improvement. It's acknowledging that I can't improve self and that I'm at my wit's end and trapped in my sin unless I turn to Christ. But Paul was direct And he challenges them. He says, these gods that you worship are all inanimate gods. They they require humans to wait upon them. They require humans to do for them. I'm talking about a living God, a God who gives life, a God who speaks and things happen, a God who has made everything. And he was persistent. As we've seen all through his life, we see all through his life in ministry, Paul was persistent. He was never dissuaded. One time we see that he got a little bit, a little bit fearful maybe in Corinth. But most of the time, Paul was bold with the gospel and persistent. Not will, he didn't see it in his fight. He knew that the, the fight had already been won. Christ had won the battle. His job is spreading the news about that battle. He was effective. Now, I want you to understand what effectiveness is. This is very important because some are here and they think, well, if someone doesn't doesn't turn to Christ, then I have failed in making Christ known. That's not true. That's absolutely not true. Success in being a gospel proclaimer is in proclaiming the gospel. God determines what he's going to do with it. He just says our job is to make Christ known, to proclaim Christ unapologetically. Here's what we see. When Paul proclaimed the gospel, some ignored him. Some just went on about their business. They didn't have any ears to hear. Some mocked him. They sneered at him. He's talking about resurrecting from the dead. How ridiculous is that, that to think that people actually come back from the dead? Some procrastinated. They made excuses and said, well, I'll hear you again later on this. They denied that there was any urgency here. And then some, it says, believed. Some believed. Now, the book of Acts 
uh, unveils the birth of the church and the spread of the gospel. Acts 1.8 dovetails with the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 19, and 20. This is what Acts 1.8 says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, the mandate for the disciples and all Christ followers is to make disciples. Go and make disciples. Mark 16, 15, and 16. Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, many rightly understand making disciples as teaching. Many churches will lean into, well, we've got to teach what the Bible says. And I'm not arguing against that. But you, but you can't disciple lost people. Without regeneration of the soul, discipling doesn't accomplish what it's intended to accomplish. You can't make people be conformed to Christ by teaching them the things of Christ if their hearts are still lost, if they're still unregenerate. The pattern throughout Acts is undeniable. People are changed by Christ. They're growing in Christ. They're praying continually. They're proactive for Christ in the highways and byways of the world. This is the unchallengeable pattern that we see in the first generation after Christ's ascension back into heaven. The church was mobilized, it was in the community. They proclaimed gospel truth, they reasoned, they discussed, they encouraged. This in and of itself implies that it wasn't just an immediate, you know, decision or change for people, but that there was, there was investment. There was investment of ongoing conversation, ongoing arguing the case for Christ, arguing the claims of the gospel. They proclaimed gospel truth, reason, discuss, encourage, exhorted the gospel. Some ignored, some procrastinated, some denied, some even were agitated and opposed it, and some believed. Effective gospel, when you've got those things going on, I think you've got effective gospel work going on. Doesn't mean that effective gospel work is only happening when someone is professing a decision to follow Christ. When you've got these other things going on, it all, it all goes together. It's not our responsibility to force conversions or produce believers. It's our responsibility to preach Christ and his gospel. Only he can raise the dead. And Ephesians 2 says, all are dead in their sins and trespasses, right? Only Christ raises dead. Not you or I. Our job is to tell them about the one who can raise the dead. This text in Acts 17, 16 through 34 gives us a graphic picture of gospel work. Now, how do we emulate Paul's example in present-day Milton or the larger Atlanta area? Well, I want to give you just two or three things to think about. One, 
I'll say it again. Our assignment is unchanged. No matter what the culture is, no matter what's going on in the culture, no matter how much change comes to the culture, our assignment is unchanged. We go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. Second, our motivation is uncommon. Our motivation is uncommon. We are not moved by the things of this world, nor of the patterns of this world. Our motivation must be different. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. What moved Jesus to leave heaven and condescend and take on flesh and live among us was to seek and to save the lost. That has to be what compels us to go beyond the walls of the church, into the community, into the marketplace, into the schools, into the wherever we're going with the gospel to make disciples. If he was willing to die in order to make the gospel available, then it must be our job to take the gospel no matter what the condition or temperature of the community may be. 2 Peter 3.9 says, God does not take joy or pleasure in anyone perishing. It's not his will or desire for anyone to perish. Does that motivate you? 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 says, We have been made new creations in Christ, talking about the, new, the transformation after regeneration. And it says that we are made ministers of reconciliation. What does that mean? Ministers or ambassadors of reconciliation. That means that the world, the world is condemned. The lost are condemned before God. They are not welcome into God's presence. Reconciliation is necessary. And there's only one way reconciliation can occur, and that's through what Christ did upon the cross. Our job is to minister that reconciliation, to take the word of that reconciliation, the good news. Hey, you don't have to be condemned. You don't have to be condemned and outside of God and apart from God and separated him from him forever. You have an opportunity to be reconciled to him. Come to Christ. Believe the gospel. Repent of sin and follow him. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 21, we are, we said we are joined to Christ, filled with His Spirit, and as we've already talked about this morning, for the praise of His glory, chapter 1 of Ephesians says, this is the motivation. Revelation 7 and 9 gives us the picture of a future gathering where all people of many tribes and tongues gathered together before the throne, worshiping God. This is what motivates us. Our motivation is uncommon. It's not like the world. We can't be driven by what the world is selling, but motivated by what God has put before us. And our strategy must be uncomplicated. Our strategy must be uncomplicated. What does that mean, Pastor? Well, that means it's not, it's not complicated in how we do this. People talk to me, they'll ask me, they'll say, well, what program are we going to use? And I said last week, the program is you, the program is me. It's not a program coming out of some office somewhere in Nashville or in Gwinnett County here in Georgia. It's us. It's us and this Bible, this word, this gospel. That's the program. That's what it's going to take. Our job is to start being more aware of the people that are crossing our paths each and every day. You're interacting with so many people. Just start, just start writing them down. Every day, 
Just make a list of the people that you interacted with that day or crossed your path that day. Maybe it was just a, hey, how are you on the sidewalk? Maybe it was someone you checked out at the convenience mart or at the grocery store and they checked you out. Maybe it was somebody that was at the gas station when you were pumping gas across the pump from you. More people than you will ever imagine are crossing your path day in and day out. God has ordained these paths that they will intersect your life. What are we doing with those opportunities? Would you dare, would you dare to take the opportunity to try to get to know that person, to put a name with a face? Just get familiar with them. Find out what makes them tick. Find out what's going on in their life. Find out what the issues of everyone likes to talk about themselves. You know it's true. Ask them questions. You don't, it's not complicated. Just start asking them questions. You do this all the time. Get to know them. Take note of what they tell you. Start praying for those things that they tell you, those issues in their life. Ask them if you can pray for them. Hey, that's, I know that's a hard thing when your kids are not doing what you want them to do. That's a hard thing. Would you be okay if I prayed for that for you? <laughs> I've yet to meet anybody that would say, no, I'd rather you really wish you wouldn't. Rather just handle it myself. No, they're desperate. They're looking for anything. Be aware. Take notice. Be intentional to discover, to get to know them. This you do know about everyone you encounter. You do know they have an appointment to stand before God and face judgment. The scripture tells us that. You may not know anything else about them, but you know that day's coming. Nurture a relationship. Get better acquainted. Invest in them through prayer, by name specifically. Pray that God will grow and fill you and use you to make Christ known. Find ways to show kindness to them. It doesn't take a lot. It doesn't take much at all. Gospel urgency is percolating in our body. Robert, Robert's going out and standing on the street down in Alpharetta and preaching the gospel to people. <laughs> Now, I told him, I said, don't expect many people to line up behind you and go with you. That's some bold stuff right there. We've got others that are doing the same thing. They're looking for ways to engage the people that are, in, that are crossing their paths each and every day to share the gospel. This is what we're here for. This is what we're here for. This is what God has raised up Milton Community Church for at this place in this time, this season. We live in an affluent society. They have everything that money can buy. And it deadens them. It deadens them to the things they need, and that is Christ. They don't think they have a need. It's a tough place to do evangelism. So if we're going to go at this without prayer, we're setting ourselves up to fail. You won't do it. You won't be able to do it. Gospel urgency is percolating in our body. Fan the flames through your prayers, through getting involved. Sign up and take Nathan's class. He's, he's doing the equipping. You say, well, I don't know how to do this. We're providing opportunities for equipping. If there's anything you need to know about sharing your faith with someone, you come and talk to me. I'll be glad to sit you down and talk to you how, how to do this. Share Christ and then trust him to bring a harvest. This is our challenge. 
I love this church. I love where you are as a church. I love the unity and the spirit in this church. I love what God's doing in this church. But we got to go to the next level. And the next level is we got to take it and show it and give it to other people. What God's doing in you, what God's doing here, has got to go outside the walls and do in this community, in this city, and in this world. Jesus challenged us to be mindful of his redemptive work. One way we do that is by observing the Lord's Supper and the ordinance of baptism. These are the two things that Jesus left us. And he said, do these things to remind yourself of what I've done for you. And today we do come to the Lord's table. It's a visible picture of the blood and the body of Christ that was given to redeem us. And so today, as we prepare our hearts to come to the table, we remember what Christ has done for us, and we should aspire to see him do that in others as well. It's a visible reminder of his body and his blood. Do this in remembrance of me until I come, he said, until I come. Scripture defines it as a serious and sober opportunity, not one that we should take lightly. We're warned against coming in a careless manner or even in a uh, defiant manner toward God. We're to come with our hearts having been cleansed and pure and desiring fellowship with each other and with God. The table is for true converts, people who have heard and believed the gospel who have, upon hearing and believing the gospel, repented of sin and have trusted Christ's atoning work. People who have followed him in believer's baptism. People who are in a church where the gospel is proclaimed and taught and practiced. And they are in good standing there, not under church discipline. We are to come with clean hearts and lives, having confessed our sins, having examined our relationships our attitudes, our actions, are we being Christ-like in all things? If you're a member of this church and you're being faithful and not under church discipline, you're invited to come. If you're a member of a church of like faith and practice and you are living in a faithful way and not under church discipline, you're welcome to participate as well. I want to encourage us to pause for a second. In prayer, silent prayer, and prepare ourselves through reflection and self-examination. Prepare our hearts to approach the Lord's table. I'm going to close us out by praying myself, and then we will sing together and come and receive the elements and take them back to your seats, where Nathan's going to come and lead us in taking the elements together. Let us pray. Our Father, we do acknowledge our need for you and thank you, Lord, for your sweet spirit that whispers in our ears, that moves in our hearts. And I pray that even in these moments, you have searched our hearts, examined our hearts. And if you found anything within us that compromises our fellowship with you, 
that we have been diligent to bring it to you and say, Lord, please forgive. Restore me into vibrant fellowship with you or with another and that you have indeed forgiven. Your word says that if we are faithful to repent, you are faithful to forgive. And so as we come to your table, we pray that our hearts indeed would be in right fellowship with you and with one another, and that you would use this time, Lord, to encourage in us some remembrance of the gospel and its implications for our lives and for those that we encounter. In Jesus' name, amen.